It was a government policy, and it was accepted. You have to start there. So you have to ask, what is our government doing? This was a government policy that was widely accepted and praised. Who was there to pick them up and to hug them and tell them it's okay? and to clean their little knee off and, and let them know, you know, it's all right, you're okay. They even thought Indians weren't smart enough to go to college. So it wasn't a true educational institution and that's why the name, it was the Phoenix Indian Industrial School. Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. This week, we're answering a question related to our indigenous communities. My name is Rob Bartella. I grew up in uh, central Phoenix near the historic district. And um, I've always wondered what the Phoenix Indian School was like for the students and family who were there. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, the U.S. government systematically took Native American children from their homes and put them in boarding schools designed to erase their culture and assimilate them. Central Phoenix is home to one of those schools. In this episode, you'll hear from several Native people who have personal knowledge about the Phoenix Indian School, like Patty Talahangova, a woman from the Hopi Nation. It is brutal history, it is sad history, it's history that we never want repeated again. But it's also a history of strength and resilience. It's also a history of integrity. In this episode, you'll hear all about Phoenix Indian School. From its start in 1891 to its end in 1990. Producer Taylor Seeley and reporter Sean Dean Silversmith will take you on a journey to better understand the school, its students, and their experiences. My name is Sean Dean Silversmith. I'm a Danette journalist from the Navajo Nation, and I have about a decade of reporting experience. At the Arizona Republic, I cover our state's indigenous communities, which includes 22 federally recognized tribes. You probably didn't know, but Arizona has the third largest indigenous population in the country. Something that made me realize just how much this type of coverage was needed was when I went away to college and realized how little my non-Native peers knew about Native people and Native history in general. Like, for example, the very early history of federally operated boarding schools. There's a museum in Midtown Phoenix called the Heard Museum. It's internationally acclaimed for its dedication to advancing American Indian art. It has a new exhibit called Away From Home, American Indian Boarding School Stories. When you first walk in, you're greeted by the young faces of Native children who attended boarding school. Hundreds of their photos flash across the TV screen. Then, you're hit with the sound of a train on train tracks. It's supposed to recreate the journey that Native children experienced when the U.S. government took them from their homelands and hauled them off to a boarding school. You know, train was a very foreign experience for them and that would be the start of their journey. 
That's Janet Cantley, the curator of the Heard Museum. So this beginning part is kind of that journey of from homelands and family and community to this very stark, you know, Western building, brick building. The exhibit walls are covered in black and white prints that extend from the ceiling to the ground. There are images of native land and brick boarding schools. And as you look at them, you walk through a hall that curves softly to the right. And then it hits you. The sound of chopping scissors and an ominous sight. An old vintage barber chair. The leather is a sea green color. When you look down, you see black braided hair chopped and scattered all over the ground. There's a quote that's printed above the chair. The next day, the torture began. The first thing they did was cut our hair. While we were bathing, our breech cloths were taken and we were ordered to put on trousers. We'd lost our hair and we'd lost our clothes. With the two, we had lost our identity as Indians. Indian boarding schools um, started in this country as a federal policy in the late 1800s, but really they were introduced with colonization and um, missionization. Meet Christine Dindisi McCleave. She's a Turtle Mountain Ojibwe woman who runs the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. I first met her at the opening of the Herd Museum exhibit in February. She lives in Minnesota, so I called her for this episode. It was Colonel Pratt in the Army, the U.S. Army, that um, decided that the federal government should stop waging wars on Indian tribes um, in efforts to make way for land expansion um, because it was too expensive and that um, because the Indians were, quote, capable of being civilized, um, that they should open these Indian boarding schools because it was cheaper to educate them. Quote, kill the Indian, save the man. This is how Colonel Richard Henry Pratt talked about the education of Native people. In 1879, he opened the nation's first Indian boarding school in Pennsylvania, called the Carlisle Indian School. At the time, the country shifted gears and began focusing on assimilating Native people into Western society. Pratt's words played a vital role in the development of boarding schools across the country. It was designed for cultural genocide. That When the students arrived, everything from their tribal culture was stripped of them. Their traditional clothing, um, they were um, prohibited from speaking their language and they used corporal punishment. So they were beaten if they spoke their language. Um, they were um, also beaten and punished if they engaged in any of their tribal ceremonies or prayers or songs, any of that. At the Heard Museum exhibit, small TV screens display interviews with Native people and university professors. On one screen, Dr. Shanina Lomaiwama, a distinguished scholar of Indigenous education at Arizona State University, talks about how the schools were about more than just assimilation. 
The practices were about separating Native people from their lands. And the practices were about making Native people not Native anymore. That, in a way, disrupts the fundamental authenticity of their claims to land. If we can make them something not indigenous, that fundamentally ruptures that inherent sovereign indigenous claim to land. Once students arrived at the schools, and after being stripped of their native identity, they were taught trades. They were meant to be a cheap labor force. At Phoenix Indian School, the students were usually instructed in a militant fashion, marching to and from each school building. The school extended from Central Avenue to 7th Street on Indian School Road. It housed thousands of students. Boys often worked on the farm or did construction in the sweltering heat. Girls learned how to cook and clean and sew. On top of all that, they had to speak only English or face severe consequences, like Christine said. The brutality of the militant instruction really didn't change until about the 1930s. In 1924, the federal government passed the Indian Citizenship Act, granting more rights to Native people. Some Natives who had fought for the U.S. in World War I were granted citizenship a few years earlier. With that, American culture shifted. Society reevaluated how boarding schools should function. The schools remained militant and still taught trades, but over time, they eventually became more academic. They started sports teams and band classes. The school even churned out some talented musicians. Eventually, some of the most harsh or severe punishments dropped off. Along the way, what was then called Phoenix Indian Industrial School became just Phoenix Indian School. The students there called it PI, for short. We tried to track down PI students as far back as possible for this episode. We found Leon and Evangeline Nevayestawa, husband and wife, who both graduated from PI in 1959. And to my surprise, they both remembered their boarding school experiences fondly. So when you think of your time at PI and you think of the memories there, are they all positive? Pretty much most of them, I'd say, were positive. I think we really had caring people at that time taking care of us, you know, making sure that we got what we should. Uh, it was To me, it was a positive thing in a way because my parents have, have always been encouraging us to get the education so that we could be able to exist in this in this world, you know, and take care of ourselves. Leon said every morning it was a set routine. We didn't march to school, but we had to walk together as a group to school. And in the morning when the bell rang to wake us up, we would slide down the pole like they have in these old uh, fire stations. We used to slide down in the pole and we would have numbers out there in the, in the outside the, the dorm, and you had to cover your number every time you came down. If you didn't cover your number, then they would uh, count you as absent. Boys and girls were separated into different dorms. At the beginning of PI, when it was the industrial school, a bunch of beds were stuffed into one large room. Over time, 
it transitioned to more traditional dorm rooms like today. One or two beds to a room. I went to school from 8 in the morning till 5. No getting off at 3 in the afternoon like they do now. It's just, we had full days. After a full school day, students could go to work off school campus. These were called outings. Well, what type of work did you do? We did everything from house cleaning to washing, ironing. So I think I learned a lot of things when I was there doing that. I think at first it was really tedious, and by afternoon we were tired. And, and then after school, as if we didn't do enough school all day, some of us went to work too after school. And how often did you guys go to work? I went at least uh, three or four times a week. And of course, the weekends, we had to go work. We had no choice. For Evangeline, the outings afforded her the ability to further her education after Phoenix Indian School. When we got paid, our um, head matron, they called her Miss McKinney, used to take all our money away from us and give us just $5, and she would bank it for us. And we used to be so upset with her, but we were ever so thankful when I realized that I could pay my own college, so I really enjoyed it. I didn't mind going outing. That's what they called it, outing. I didn't mind that at all. Leon wasn't quite as lucky. In my situation, I was not banking any of that money. I was spending all of it, <laughs> spending all of it on my friends at the school. We would go to the school store, and there would be a whole crowd with me, my friends, and I would be buying everybody <laughs> a cup of coffee and donuts and things like that. Leon also loved participating in sports. He said before he left for PI, which was in seventh grade, by the way, his tribe had a few ceremonial activities that felt similar to the sports at PI. So when he was out on a football field, he felt a sort of faint connection to back home, which was important because while Leon and Evangeline enjoyed their time at boarding school, it wasn't all perfect, starting with how they got there. Leon and Evangeline didn't choose to attend PI. At the time, the Hopi Nation didn't offer a high school. So the choice was made for them, and PI was hours away by bus. Their families didn't have transportation, and they didn't make much money. For Leon, he at least got to go home for a few summer vacations. But for Evangeline, once she left, it was final. She stayed at the boarding school for all four years of high school. I think for me, I think it took me a year to adjust to that and then begin to be uh, positive about what was happening at the school. Uh, the first probably four, four or five months, it was, we were struggling with the homesickness, you know. I was always homesick for a long time, like maybe even not the first year, maybe even second year or something. I always wanted to come home. But they kept encouraging us to stay there because it was for our own good, so. At one point, Evangeline got so homesick, she and a friend tried to run away back to the Hopi Nation. Tell me a little bit more about that. Why did you want to run away? We just got really homesick. I, we were just missing a lot of things that we, we you know, our ceremonies out here continuous. And, but I went, I ran away with her because I was really homesick. So I lost my grandma when I was in, a senior in high school. And nobody told me. 
Being absent for the passing of family members and important traditional teachings was common for boarding school students. Phoenix Indian School was in Phoenix after all, very far from many of the students' homelands. Evangeline and her friend made it to a cotton field before they were caught and returned to Phoenix Indian School. Her punishment? She had to clean the school for months, and she wasn't allowed to attend any fun school trips. But ultimately, Evangeline was glad that she was found. And in her final years at PI, she excelled. Both she and Leon said they felt the instructors were caring and wanted the best for them. After they graduated in 1959, another society shift occurred in the 60s. Native control schools started opening in Native communities. In fact, the first one opened on the Navajo Nation in Arizona in 1966, called the Rough Rock Demonstration School. Today, it's called the Rough Rock Community School. That new opportunity, combined with declining enrollment numbers, eventually led to the Phoenix Indian School's closure in 1990. But today, there are still remains of PI, located in Steel Indian School Park on 3rd Street and Indian School Road. We are at Indian School Park, and we're gonna take a tour of the Phoenix Indian School Visitor Center. The director of the center is gonna talk about the history of the Phoenix Indian School. Patty Telehungova attended Phoenix Indian School in 1978. And by this point in the school's history, it was actually a point of pride to attend PI. She loved it. She had friends, freedom, and even a job with a local newspaper. And when her mother forced her to leave after just a year, she didn't want to go. When Phoenix Indian Industrial School opened in 1891, it was one of the largest boarding schools in the Southwest. It had dozens of buildings. It expanded for miles. Today, what's left is a dining hall that's closed because it hasn't been renovated, a grammar school where the visitor center is located, and a memorial hall, which is meant to honor the Native men who fought in World War I. You know, th this is the work of probably anyone from you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old up to 20 years old. They helped build all three buildings, and all three buildings are on the National Register of Historic Places. That should tell you something right there. There's also a gallery when you first walk into the former grammar school. It's full of old keepsakes and trinkets of PI. There are happy memories and sad memories. So when visitors ask Patty what Phoenix Indian School was like for students, she says the answer depends on when. I think for all of the kids alive today who went to the Phoenix Indian School, their memories are pretty good. You know, again, they have that pride of being at PI. But if we could talk to our great-grandparents, they would say something different. So in the very beginning, it was brutal, and it was sad and tragic. Kids died here from loneliness, heartache, from illness. So it was brutal in the early days. And then slowly things changed and got better. You know, everybody adapts to change in different ways. Some people handle it really well. Other people just fold up and try to ignore as much as possible until it's over. So it's, it's not an easy answer. And you really have to put it into perspective. Patty said the impact of boarding schools has left lasting trauma on Native families too. 
trauma that they're still trying to sort through and manage. I asked her what she wants people to remember about Phoenix Indian School and the students. Our history with the U.S. government is so convoluted, and it's not a nice history, it's not, it's not a, a good history, and it still is not today. So how do we, how do we change that? And again, showing the resiliency side of it, I think that's a part of it. Understanding that there are many kids who went to boarding school and, and excelled in their lives. We're not assimilated. We're not by any means assimilated to the point that the government wanted us to be assimilated. Those kids came to school in this building. Those kids were strong. They were resilient and they had integrity. Hey, it's Kayla again. Shandeen, thank you so much for that deep dive into Phoenix Indian School and the students who attended it. Thank you for letting me share this story and being able to share this part of Indigenous history with you. This is a lot of history to cover in 20 minutes. Is there anything that stood out to you that maybe we didn't get to include here? I think one of the things that a lot of people need to understand is the experiences included in this story came later. It is from high school age students talking about their times in boarding school, specifically Phoenix Indian boarding school. But not all experiences were like that, especially younger students, younger students who were first going into a boarding school or first going to a school in general, they all had different experiences. And another example I can talk about is with Evangeline. She told me about her times when she went to day school on the Hopi reservation and she was talking about how when she was there she would constantly get in trouble for speaking her native language. There was even a time when the teachers who were there wanted to clean her and they doused her hair in kerosene as a way to get rid of all the bugs that might be in her hair. So there are those type of experiences that we didn't get to really highlight because it comes from early ages of boarding schools. So when we talk about the boarding school experience, you have to understand that it's generational. It is really complicated history and it's a really painful history for a lot of people. Well, that's it for today. We want to especially thank the Heard Museum for letting us record in their exhibit and for sending us recordings of former PI student and musician Russell Moore. This episode was produced by Taylor Seeley. And if you enjoyed learning about the history of Phoenix Indian School, you can find all of Sean Dean Silversmith's coverage of Arizona's indigenous communities at azcentral.com. Thank you for listening to Valley 101. Submit your questions to us at valley101.azcentral.com. We hope you're enjoying and learning from some of the deeper dives we've been taking into Phoenix history and culture. If you are, consider leaving us a rating and review on your podcast app. It helps other people find the show. All right, see you next week.